Again, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we're very happy to have you. We are blessed in your presence that you have decided to worship with us this morning. And my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at Ephesus Church. And it is our common practice to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse. And we find ourselves this morning in the book of 1 John and in the fourth chapter. So if you have your Bible, please turn to chapter 4 of 1 John. We will be looking at verses 13 through 16. And I want to ask for your forgiveness up front. I'm getting over some sickness and coughing a lot, so I'm breaking rule number one of public speaking, and I have something in my mouth, so I apologize, and by the Lord's grace, we'll get through this. 1 John chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16. The title of my sermon this morning is Living in Love. And for our worshipers in training, our children, your key words are Savior, world, abides, and love. And I'm wondering if it has ever crossed your mind that what we believe as Christians is crazy. If you've ever considered the various claims of the Christian faith that we hold to be true, and if even for an instant thought, this is insanity. This can't be true. Have there ever been times you've been challenged by something as you were engaging someone in a conversation or having a way of thinking and then for a moment you thought, it doesn't really matter. These things aren't really true anyway. It's all a game. Has it ever crossed your mind? If not, that's a wonderful blessing. But if it has, I can assure you that you're not alone. Because of our unbelieving nature, coupled with the unbelievable claims of Christianity, there have most certainly been times that the majority of Christians have thought What if? What if I'm just wasting all my time and my life and my money and my talent? What if all this time that we spend together on Sundays and in small groups during the week and serving other people and all this time could be spent doing other things that would bring us greater enjoyment and satisfaction in this world because it's all going to cease to exist when we die anyway. So we might as well enjoy it now. What if it's all not true and I've been given faithfully of my money for all these years and I've been sacrificially giving to someone else something they needed only to find out in the end that there was no requirement on my life that I do any of this because it's just one big cosmic happening. And I'm confident this morning that you're not alone if you've had these thoughts. Because for one, at weak moments, I've too entertained these evil thoughts. Now, I would say it is healthy to take the Christian faith, to take those things which we hold to be true, and put them through a sort of rigorous test to see if they hold true. To test the validity of the Scriptures. To test the Bible's claims regarding man and his nature as compared to what you see and experience. 
Do these things because I am certain that as you do them, you will be all the more assured of the validity of the truth of your Christian faith. But then you might think, even if it isn't true, even if heaven and hell don't exist, Christ wasn't raised from the dead, God didn't create the universe, at least I'm safe just in case. Is that who Jesus is and what He's accomplished for you? A little security deposit just in case? No! The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if it is true, and the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we give our lives to the truth of Scripture and living godly, biblical lives, and then in the end it all proves to not be true, Paul reminds us that we don't just sit back and say, oh well, I was safe just in case. No, Paul reminds us that above all men we are to be pitied. And so as I think about that, I stand back and look at the totality of John's letter in 1 John. And I see very clearly that John has a very specific goal in mind. In that he wanted to assure us that what we believe is in fact true. That we can know that we are children of God. And that there is evidence to show that we are truly a people who have been supernaturally transformed by the grace of God alone. John has repeatedly returned to this theme through the book of surety or certainty or assurance. And in our passage this morning, John goes on to assure us that what we believe is in fact not crazy, but real and active and alive in us and through us. He reminds us that a true believer knows God personally, relationally, experientially, life-changingly. He reminds us that the only reason we do know God in these ways is because He has shown Himself through the giving of the Holy Spirit to us to transform our lives, that we can love and live in ways that are impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So John's burden throughout the entire letter is to teach us how to be sure that God abides in us and how to test ourselves to be sure that we know that God abides in us. That is the question we must keep before us this morning. Are you sure that God abides in you today? 
Let's look real quickly. How many times John calls us to think about this? How many times he calls us to assurance? Chapter 2, verse 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. Chapter 2, second part of verse 5, By this we may know that we are in Him. Chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God. Chapter 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed out of life into death. Chapter 3, verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. Chapter 3, second part of verse 24, And by this we know that He abides in us. Chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Chapter 4, verse 6, By this we know the Spirit of truth. Chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. And chapter 5, verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so there is this constant theme of being assured. What does He want us to be sure of? He wants us to be sure that we abide in God and God abides in us. And that we can know that what we believe, what we have experienced, what we know to be true is real and active and is not crazy. But the way that leads to life everlasting. Last week we ended on verse 12. Let me read the second part of that verse. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And this is sort of a summary of what John goes on to explain in today's passage and the passage we'll look at next week. So in totality, verses 13 through 21, this week we'll focus on 13 through 16. So let's read those verses together. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. By this we know that we abide in Him and that He in us. Because He has given us of His Spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. So we will be expanding on John's initial statement that if we love one another, we will see two things. One, God abiding in us. And two, God's love being perfected in us. And it's important to know what's significant about this. Look back at verse 8 of chapter 4. John writes, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So what John is saying here is essentially this. If a person is a true Christian, they will love others. If they do not love others, they are not Christians. Because God is love. And since God is love, when He abides in us, His love will be perfected in us. 
That's what we're unpacking this morning. And to expand on those two things I've mentioned from verse 12, God abiding in us and God's love being perfected in us, John gives what I see to be three evidences in verses 13 through 16. And we're going to look at each of those individually. Of God abiding in us. And next week we'll deal with God's love being perfected in us. So three evidences that we are Christians, that we love and know God. One, He has given us His Spirit. Two, we have a knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And three, love is dwelling in our place. And really, two and three hinge on number one. So we're going to look at each of those individually. Number one, He has given us His Spirit. Look again at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. This is a very similar statement to chapter 3, verse 24, which reads, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And this is a great reality in the Christian life. We have been called out of darkness away from our sin, to suddenly see with clarity the truth of the Gospel of Christ Jesus. He gives us the desire to repent of our sins and the gift of faith to believe in the Gospel. He redeems us. He adopts us into His family as sons and daughters. And He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives to us Himself the third person of the Holy Trinity, to dwell within us. There's a very common false teaching today that says that the Holy Spirit is given to the Christian in sort of installments. Like the Holy Spirit is making payments into our account. We get a little bit at a time. But it's simply not true. It is contrary to the Scriptures and really contrary to this very verse. When God saves us, we receive all of the Holy Spirit. And He, at that moment, abides in us. It's not possible to only have like 60% of the Holy Spirit. We don't need a sort of topping off of the Holy Spirit in our lives if He truly dwells within us. You see, if this were the case, we would not have the ability, nor would we have the desire to love. And as we've already discovered, if we do not love, we do not know God. Therefore, if God is not fully dwelling in us as the Holy Spirit, we are not Christians. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong in Him. Also important here is the first part of John's statement that we abide in Him. While it is impossible for us to not have all of the Holy Spirit if we are true believers, it is possible 
for Him to have less than all of us. We can grieve the Holy Spirit when we are not walking in the Spirit. When we are not walking consistent with the Word of God, which is consistent with the work of the Holy Spirit who is within us. And two, when John writes about us abiding in God and God abiding in us, he's not writing about some second level Christianity or some super spirituality that exists beyond being a Christian in normal terms. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Therefore, this abiding either is or it is not. If it is not, Jesus makes it clear that the lake of fire awaits. Therefore, abiding in Christ does not refer to a higher level of understanding or belief. It refers to whether or not you're a true believer. Whether you are in the vine or in the fire. And this is very important because false believers are in danger of the same hell as those who reject Christ outright. Our Lord Jesus was very concerned about those who professed to be believers, but were in reality not believers at all. That's why he told his followers the parable of the wheat and the weeds. In Matthew 13, it says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But when his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus knew there would be false believers amongst his people, and some would remain until the final judgment and at that time be cast into the lake of fire. So you see, abiding in Jesus is not some superficial affirmation by word, but it is wholehearted commitment to Jesus and all that He commands. Remember, we were reminded of that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And this is why Jesus taught some very hard things to make very clear that there will be a distinction amongst those who are and are not true believers in Christ. If any man come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. 
If you're not willing to reject all that the world offers, if you're not willing to give up everything you have, even your life, you are not worthy to be My disciple. If you're not willing to hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your family, you're not worthy to be My disciple. You see, Jesus eliminates the superficial. He eliminates a half-hearted commitment of so many who claim to have faith in Christ, but show no devotion to fulfilling His commands to prove that they abide in God and He in them. And this is evidence. John makes clear that the Holy Spirit does not abide in them. True Gospel commitment, really, is fairly easy to identify. It is so countercultural. It looks very different than the norm. That's what Jesus calls us to. And why John says it will be present in this instant through love. God's abiding in us will naturally incline us to the things of God. And we will, in turn, display the fruits of the Spirit. And so you may say you have faith, but the issue is not faith. The issue is saving faith. You say you believe in God? Big deal! This is not saving faith. This is no evidence of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. The Apostle James wrote, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It is foolishness to claim to have faith in God and yet have no evidence that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. For as James says, you are no different than the demons. And so our first evidence of being true believers in Christ, walking with Christ, is that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. <clears throat> Number two, we know that God abides in us because of a knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Verses 14 and 15. Let's read those together. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Saving faith is not just superficial feelings. We must acknowledge that Saving faith refers to intellectual assent that results in something. Namely, repentance, belief, cross-bearing, world-denying life in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Saving faith is most certainly filled with feelings. And they are glorious and fulfilling and satisfying and precious but please, please do not go through this life making decisions and being affirmed or denied and determining whether or not you're a Christian based on your feelings. Let's look more closely. Verse 14, And we have seen and testified. 
John is writing concerning himself and those who were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. It's the same thing Peter wrote about in 2 Peter 1.16. For we know, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. So this understanding that the apostles had regarding God's sending of His Son was not subjective in the least bit. It was that which they were eyewitnesses to. They saw Jesus in the flesh. They saw God in the flesh. They experienced His work and His life in the flesh. So our experiential witness, that being our experience of salvation, our life in community with one another, our new affection for others in God, These experiential witnesses are a witness to the Spirit's dwelling within us and are tied to the historic apostolic witness. What is that? What is the historic apostolic witness? In this day and time, it is the Scriptures. So if God lives in you, if the Spirit lives in you, The Bible becomes precious. The Bible becomes real to you. It is your source of life. It is your source of verification and assurance. And this means that your experience, like the apostles, is not subjective either. Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So you will have an inner conviction because the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. And that inner conviction will result in outward confession. No one comes to believe and trust in the truths of Christianity except by the work of the Holy Spirit, which then results in an outward confession of faith. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, this knowing is vital. It is personal. It is life transforming. It is confessing Jesus historically as a man, eternally as God, and experientially as our Savior. And this is basic Christianity. When John says here that the evidence of abiding in God is that we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, he means that the confession is the evidence that you are saved. Confessing Jesus as the Son of God is basic Christianity, not tier level 2 Christianity. 
Abiding God is being in a relationship with God. Confessing that Jesus is the Son of God is abiding in God and God abiding in you. It is salvation. Look at what chapter 5, verse 13 says the issue is. It is not the issue of intimacy with the Holy Father. It is the issue of eternal life. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This verse sums up the entire letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And chapter 3, verse 15 says that if you confess Jesus as the Son of God, you have God abiding in you. 5.13 says that if you believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. So what John means when he speaks of abiding in God and God abiding in us is the possession of eternal life. Abiding in God is having eternal life. Not some advanced stage of intimacy with God. If you abide in the vine, you have life. And in that life, you bear fruit. If you do not abide in the vine, you are gathered with the other withered branches and thrown into the fire. John's issue is salvation mainly, not maturity. And if you read this, if you hear this, and you respond with agreement to what John is writing, if you agree with the apostolic witness of John in the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, then John says God abides in you. It's the same thing he said in chapter 4, verse 6. Whoever knows God listens to us, and he who is not of God does not listen to us. Therefore, John can give his testimony in verse 14 that the Father sent the Son, and then in verse 15 say that if you listen to this and confess it, not just say it, but agree with it and believe it, if you confess it, then you are of God. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of truth. God abides in you and you abide in God. Confessing Christ as the Savior who came and died to save a people for Himself from all the world is a confessing that God abides in you and you abide in Him. If you believe this, if you live with great faith in this, you believe that which can only be believed because it is revealed to you by God. Sinners are dead in trespasses and sin, blind, no ability whatsoever to see or believe. So if you believe and confess the great historical truths of Christ, it's not according to your will because you cannot know God. God is not knowable by human wisdom. God is not knowable by human intelligence. 
The Bible tells us that natural man understands not the things of God. They are foolishness to him. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the ruler? Where is the intelligentsia? They are all fools, unable to discern the truth of God. Therefore, if you discern the truth of God, and if you love and cherish the truth of God, you have sure evidence that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you and you in Him. Here's what that looks like practically and how you can sort of pick out a fake. Perhaps determine that you yourself may be a fake. If you are instructed from the Word of God and your thought is, that's silly, that's foolish, that's archaic and outdated, that's not practical, that's unreasonable. If those are your thoughts... Or if you're confronting someone in their sin or instructing them from the Bible, and that is their response, it's pretty good evidence that they are a natural man, unable to discern the truth of God. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness in the eyes of man. If that man has not been awakened by God to the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Check yourself. Do you desire to know and live according to the wisdom of God? Or do you dwell and live within the wisdom of man? Thirdly, we know that God abides in us because love is our dwelling place. Let's look at verse 16 together. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The love that was eternally in God and historically in Christ is now visible in us. If you're taking notes, write that one down. The love that was eternally in God and historically in Christ is now visible in us. The love of God for the world is conveyed in large part through His people. The love of God is evidenced in the church and the life and works of the people of God. If you are a true Christian, you will dwell in love. If God is love, And He is. And God dwells within you. And if you're a Christian, He does. Then God being love will be expressed through you. So there is no such thing as an unloving Christian. Hear me on this, lest I be misunderstood. You and I both know that as Christians, we can do and say some very unloving things. It's evidence of our sinful, self-righteous nature that still dwells within us in part. But, if we are living in a pattern of hatred and lovelessness, if our lives are defined as being unloving, we show sure evidence that God does not dwell within us. 
John has emphatically called us to love one another. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see, if you are born of God, you love. And in John's black and white world, the opposite must also be true. Namely, that if you do not love, you are not born of God. Love is an assurance of our salvation. And this is where the theological convictions of verses 14 and 15 are confirmed by our experiences. Think about this in terms of marriage. If a marriage is great and lasting and fulfilling, that experience of marriage is a confirmation of the vows of that marriage. The covenant commitment of marriage and love for one another is confirmed through the experience of that marriage. A true believer goes on relying on the love of God. Just like I continue to grow and grow and grow in relying in and trusting in the love of my wife. Over time in my marriage, I learn that as we grow closer together, we begin to think the same thoughts and have the same ideas. Likewise, as we walk with God, We begin to know more of His Word and He is at work within us. We are thinking thoughts of God. We are dwelling on His Word. Also in my marriage, I am fully assured of my wife's love for me and my love for her when we are present with one another. And so it is with God. As He dwells within us, we are assured of His presence and His love for us. Now, if a marriage is terrible and sinful and falls apart and ends in divorce, the experience is a confirmation that the commitment, the belief in the beginning of till death do us part, was never true in the first place. Likewise, John has already written that there were those who went out from us because why? They were never of us. Their claims of belief, their claims of truth, their confession of understanding and abiding in God were never true in the first place. Or else they would still be remaining faithful to that confession and living according to the wisdom of God. So what about those What about the one who claims to be a Christian but has no evidence, no desire consistent with one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells? He has no desire to have any fellowship with other believers. He has no desire to be a part of the family of God and the church of God. He has no interest in studying the Word of God, reading the Word of God, sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. He criticizes the church instead of seeking to live in unity with her. He ignores the Lord's day to seek personal satisfaction and entertainments. What of this man? I believe it is our responsibility, friends, 
to call this man to examine himself, to see if he is truly of the faith, rather than what we often do, encouraging him to go on believing that God lives in him. This is damning. It is very, very prevalent in our culture today. There are many who claim the name of Christ. Some 70% of our country. Yet they have no interest in His bride, the church. They have no covenant relationship with other believers. They spend no time in the Word of God, reading it, studying it, listening to it be explained, being transformed by it. They give not a thought to why their lives should be any different than their neighbors. And even mock the wisdom of God and call it foolishness. I'm afraid there are many people we know who fall into this category. And I'm certain that that includes some of you in here this morning. When you look at your own life and you ask the question, am I a Christian? The answer will come, you are if you have the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Do you understand and believe the gospel in its fullness? That God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world to redeem a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to call His own? Do you believe in faith that Christ has paid the penalty for your sins? He has received the full wrath of God. That you cannot earn this, but it has been given to you as a gift. If so, then you know the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And if you understand and believe that, you also understand that God did this out of His love. Because God is love, and therefore, if you are God's, you are characterized by love. And you will love the way that God loves. You will love God as God loves God within the Trinity. You will love the Son of God as the Father loves the Son. And you will love those who belong to God. And you will even love your enemies the way that God does. Knowing that while we, you and I, as true believers in Christ, while we were yet enemies of God, He showed us great love when Christ died for us. Look at your life. Take an inventory of your life. What do you see? If you love Christ, even though you have a long way to go to being always faithful, if you love God the Father and you love to worship Him and you love to honor Him and you cherish His glory, and if you find yourself drawn to the brethren and the fellowship, sacrificially serving one another and even compassionately, lovingly caring for those outside the Gospel, so that you can give them the saving truth of Jesus Christ. This is evidence that God is in you. The God of love is in you and at work in the Holy Spirit. So I must ask how we begun. Are you sure God lives in you? 
you can answer yes if the Holy Spirit dwells within you. If you live with great joy and hope in the truth and knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And if you dwell in love. These are not conditions of me dwelling in God. They are evidences of God dwelling in me. If I am a Christian, I will be filled and will dwell in the love of God. And the love of God will sweeten the bitterness of my heart, melt the hardness of my heart, and multiply the love of my heart. Because God is love. And as God dwells within us, we too will love as God loves. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that we can come together and rejoice in and proclaim that we truly live and serve and are indwelt by God who is love. What a great and satisfying reassurance that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. That we have truth to abide in. That you have given us your word. You have given us the apostolic, historic witness of those who have observed Christ in the flesh. And that as we read the truth of your word, as we know of their experience in Christ, that we too can experience Christ. That we too can live in love and satisfaction of a God who is everlasting. Father, help us all to dwell in love. Help us as believers to dwell in love as You dwell within us. And Father, for those who are here who know not God, for those who are blinded, for those who claim to have faith and yet their faith is not saving faith, Father, awaken them to the realities Awaken them to the reality of the wrath of God that is yet to come. That they sit here this morning condemned already. Father, change their hearts, we plead with You. Cause them to cry out for salvation. Cause them to have a great desire to love You, to walk with You, to be transformed by You. Father, do that supernatural work in their lives. Call them unto Yourself. Help us all, Lord, to be evidence of Your love for us. Help us all to show evidences of the Holy Spirit within us as we are drawn to fellowship with one another in the church, as we love the Bride of Christ, as we love the Word, as we love to study the Word, as we love to understand the Word and be taught the Word as we love to serve and as we love to love. Help us to be a people who look not like the world, but who love those who are in the world to proclaim the Gospel of Christ and that they would see the joy within us and they would ask and we would be ready to proclaim to them the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be those people. Help us to live in that joy, with that satisfaction, forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.